day today in Luke chapter 19. As we are celebrating Palm Sunday today as Christians, as followers of Christ. And uh, as we're anticipating celebrating our risen Lord next Sunday, Easter Sunday. We'll be in Luke chapter 19. We'll look at verses 35 through 46. Luke 19, 35 through 46. Very familiar passage. A little bit later we'll touch on the Matthew passage. In Matthew it talks a little bit more about the Hosanna and the palm branches. And we'll see a little bit about that. It's good hearing all the voices of those children out there, isn't it? Out there, amen. A good group of kids going out there. That's exciting. It really is. And even in this passage, you'll find, and we'll see a little bit later, where he says, out of the mouth of the the babes, out of the mouth of children, is perfect praise. There's something about that childlike faith, isn't there? Uh, And uh, what a blessing. So John 19, verses 35, or Luke 19, verses 35 through 46. If you just follow along with me, uh, you can read it, or if you have it there in your Bible or on your phone or iPad or whatever gadget you have, we are blessed to have many gadgets, right, to help us with that. Uh, It says this, and they brought it to Jesus. That was the colt, the Bible says. Uh, They threw their cloaks on the colt, and they put Jesus on it. And he went along, and it says, When he came near the place where the road goes down to the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for for all, notice this, for all the miracles they had seen. We'll touch on that in a moment. But that was kind of what was leading up to it was the miracles. And they said this, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees and the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will even cry out. And as he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and he wept over it. And he said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. And they will dash you to the ground, you and the children within the walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. Notice the next thing he does. He enters the temple it says, when Jesus entered the temple court, he began to drive out those who were selling. He said, it is written, he said to them, my house will be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Isn't it interesting when we think about this first Palm Sunday as we get ready to study this passage here in a few moments and look at Matthew as well, that it's really interesting how Jesus responds and what Jesus actually does. On Palm Sunday. And so we have what we consider Palm Sunday of what we think Palm Sunday is, but then I want to take a few moments to look at the first Palm Sunday and share with you what Palm Sunday really looked like. Because it's 
a lot different than a lot of times, you know, what we, what we think of, of what Jesus did. Uh, we see what the people did, but we see what Jesus did. And uh, it's, to me, it's very interesting. Because uh, Jesus responds very uniquely under the circumstances. And so when we think about the first Palm Sunday, when we read this passage, you know, what happens is this. We often, and, and like I said in Matthew, it says that they took out the palm branches and they stripped the trees. And they took the palm branches and they begin to wave them. And they take their own clothes and their coats and they throw them out in the streets. I mean, and it is, I mean, it's a triumphal entry. But then what Jesus does in response to this is very unique, very interesting. Would you bow with me? I want to just pray and ask the Lord to bless his word because we're going to kind of get into some things that I think are very interesting. Not only interesting, I think can be very challenging. And uh, for some, this might be a little strong, but it's very necessary, okay? Uh, It's very necessary. So would you pray with me? Lord, I pray you'd help me. As we study, Lord, your life, Lord, as we study, Lord, your ministry, as we study, Lord, the first Palm Sunday, there's often what we think Palm Sunday is compared to what Palm Sunday really was like. And so, Lord, I pray that that your heart would be revealed to us today. Lord, that when we see what you did and how you responded and what you did on Palm Sunday The days following, Lord, it it reveals a lot about who you really are and what's important to you. So, Lord, I pray, please, I ask that you bless your word. Help me to communicate your word. May your Holy Spirit speak to each of our hearts today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So when we think of the first Palm Sunday, let's be honest, growing up in church, you know, and remember the flannel graphs? Now, I'm, I'm old. How many of you remember flannel graphs? All right, you guys remember, now some of you younger going, this, what is a flannel graph? Well, forget it, okay? You guys had the movies and the videos, but when you think of the triumphal entry, we call it the triumphal entry, when we think of the first Palm Sunday, Palm Sunday, and by the way, it is true, and it did happen that Jesus, he, he and, and by the way, it was a fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy, and it was being fulfilled right before their eyes. And we don't really have time to go into all the prophecy. But the Old Testament did say that, that the Messiah, that Jesus would come in on a donkey. And that he would come into Jerusalem. And that he would come. And that he would be celebrated. He would be praised. And so when, when, when Jesus comes with his disciples, his 12 men, his 12 leaders, his 12 followers. And he comes into the city. Remember, it's the time of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and it's leading up to the time of the Passover. And during the time of the Passover, there are millions of people, literally millions. The city would double or triple in size. And so Josephus, uh, the, the historian, the Jewish historian, said that there was upwards of over three million people that had literally just packed the city of Jerusalem. And so there's this huge throng. But leading up to it, Jesus had performed miracles. And the greatest miracle that Jesus performed, does anyone remember what he did? I find it interesting. It's right at the end of his ministry, right before he's getting ready to come into the city of Jerusalem on that donkey. He does something very powerful. He raises a man from the dead. His name was Lazarus. Do you kind of remember that story? Who had been dead for a number of days and buried. 
In fact, so long so that his body, they, they said, began to stink. And Jesus came to the tomb and, and, and there were people there and people watching. And when Jesus comes, he, he, he says, uh, show me where it is. And, and what's interesting is Jesus wept. He wept, and there's a whole other message in that, but Jesus breaks down and weeps. And then after he weeps, he says, show me where the tomb is. And he goes to the tomb, and he, and he, and he, and he says this. He says, Lazarus, come forth. Ooh, and, and he did. And he came walking out of that grave. And, and, and it was a miraculous sign that God used. And by the way, it showed that Jesus had power over death. That Jesus had power over the grave. And I find it interesting that Jesus uses that miracle as he's getting ready to go to the cross. But he said, Lazarus, come forth. By the way, it's a good thing he said, Lazarus, come forth. Or there would have been a lot of empty tombs that day. Amen. He specifically said, Lazarus, you come forth. And he came out. And because of that miracle, the word had spread. And because of this great throng of people, pilgrims from all over the known world had come to celebrate Passover as they always would do. The city was packed with people. And now Jesus, who just raised a man from the dead, Jesus, who is this great prophet, this great teacher, this great preacher, along with his 12 disciples, he's now coming into the city of Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. And as he comes into the city, they see him coming and the word begins to spread and they begin to tear down the, the palm branches and the palm trees and they begin to wave them. And these palms are symbolic of, of peace. And literally, it is what they would do if they would go to war and come back victorious. It was a sign of victory. And it was a sign of peace. And then they shouted out, Hosanna, Hosanna, which literally means save us, save us now. Save us now. Deliver us. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He's our king. They called him king. They called him our prince. The prince of peace. And they began to shout out. And the, the crowds began to cheer. Can you picture it? And by the way, this is how most of us, when we celebrate Palm Sunday, this is how we think of it. And by the way, there's nothing wrong with that because it's accurate, it's true, that's what happened. But can I say to you when you read the scriptures, it's interesting to me how Jesus responds. As you come into the city of Jerusalem down off the Mount of Olives, I, I've had the privilege to go there, to, to be there two different times and to, to take the route that Jesus would come down and you can look out over the city and you can see the entire city of Jerusalem. And you'll come down this path, and then later you'll have a, there's an opportunity to go down the Via Della Rosa, the road that, path that Jesus took. They call it the Stations of the Cross. But as you come down off the Mount of Olives, that mountain there, and you look down into the valley, you look down into where Jerusalem is, and you can look across and you can see what would have been then the, the Temple Mount, the Bible says Jesus does an interesting thing. While everyone is cheering, while everyone is celebrating, while even the children are crying out, Hosanna, oh save, and, and they're crying out that he is our king, Jesus does something interesting. 
He stops for a moment. He pauses as he looks over Jerusalem. And what does he do? The Bible says he weeps. He weeps. He's broken. By the way, can I just throw this out there? This is free. This is extra. The Bible says in John eleven thirty five, the shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. He wept right before he raises Lazarus from the dead. And that's a whole other sermon, but Jesus wept. I mean, Jesus is looking down over Jerusalem and he looks out over the city and he speaks about this city. He weeps. We live in a culture that has this idea that, that men are not to ever shed a tear and that it's, you know, it's not macho, it's not manly, and that real men don't cry. I grew up in that era, let me tell you. I grew up, you know, I, I'm getting older, and I grew up in that kind of rough and tough era where if I started to cry, <laughs> my dad was like, boy, I'll give you something to cry about. What you crying about? Boy, I'll give you something to cry about. We, were, we weren't supposed to cry. You know, how many of you know what I'm talking about, right? We grew up in a tough era. We grew up in an era with, I mean, helmets when you had a bike? What in the world was that? Now you can go to prison practice if your kid gets on a bike without a helmet. <laughs> Hasn't affected me a bit. Fell off my bike. <laughs> Man, we didn't have all these pads. I mean, now they practically wrap kids in bubble wrap just to send them on, on the bus. You know what I mean? How many of you remember when we went to playgrounds? Remember how high the slide would go? I mean, it's like three stories high. And you know what that thing was? That thing was made out of metal. It was made out of metal. And we were, I had little cut-off jean shorts, and I'd get up there, and I'm like, I'm going to go down the slide, Daddy. I'm going to go down the slide. And I would sit down and have third-degree burns and get stuck halfway down. We had these things called merry-go-rounds, and they were made out of steel and metal. And you'd put kids on them, and you'd just spin them. I remember. And they'd just spin them. And we're like, ah, where'd it go? Johnny hit the tree. Good job, Johnny. This is a different world. We were told growing up as young men and young boys, you don't cry and cry for sissies. And can I say this? That is not truth. In fact, real men like Jesus could cry. Had compassion and compassion moves us. Jesus wept. The Bible says he looks over the city because he knows what's the future for that city, and he knows what's to come, but he wept, and we have to ask ourselves, why did Jesus weep? I think there's a couple reasons. One is this, because he wept over their superficial belief. Did you ever really think about this, but Jesus is coming, and he rides into the city, and they, they begin to cheer and they, they, want, they were saying, crown him, make him king. You know, deliver us and, and, and you're our hero. Jesus was the hero. And they were, I mean, and do you guys realize that in a matter of just days, Jesus is going to be crucified? 
It goes from this crowd who's saying crown him king to a ferocious mob who literally cries out with a bloodthirsty cry, crucify him, crucify him. They go from crown him to crucify him in in a matter of hours, just days later. Oh, how fickle the crowd is. You see, I believe that this was what we would consider or call a superficial belief, meaning it was a selfish belief. And you see, when Jesus Christ came, we understand that he was calling them and he would say to them, follow me. But this call to follow Christ was much more than just that of a temporary fix. Can I tell you this morning that a call to follow Christ is more than just a temporary excitement, but it is a call to take up your cross and follow him. In this crowd, as they cried out, crown him king, crown him king in a matter of days when Jesus didn't do what they wanted him to do and Jesus did not fix what they wanted him to fix, they turned on him so quickly that they cried out, crucify him, crucify him. You see, there is more to discipleship than excitement and enthusiasm. To follow Jesus Christ is this, is that Jesus Christ is not here to give us a temporary fix, but to give us eternal life through him. It is my fear that we live in a day and age in a society and Many churches that are preaching what we would call a prosperity gospel that is preaching nothing more than this. Come to Jesus. Come to Jesus today and he will fix all of your problems. Come to Jesus today and you can be healthy, wealthy and wise. Come to Jesus today and listen, you'll be healed of all of your sickness and there'll be no more problems. You just come to Jesus. Hey, if you come to Jesus, you can live your best life now. Can I tell you to be a follower of Jesus Christ is more than just getting a temporary fix? Are you with me this morning? But it's a call to truly follow Christ. And you see, this crowd, they wanted one thing and one thing only, and that was this, deliver us from Rome. Jesus, you just raised a man from the dead. You have, and you've performed miracles. You now have a, 3 million plus following and you have 12 strong leaders, 12 strong men raise up an army and deliver us from Rome. Set us free. Hosanna. Save us now. I wonder how many times we are like this crowd. Oftentimes coming to Christ only because we want him to fix our problems and fix them now. And so Jesus weeps over their superficial belief and he weeps over their spiritual blindness. You see, they could not see him as the true Messiah. They did not see him as the one who was coming not to just deliver them from Rome, but listen to me, to deliver them from the evil one and to give us the hope of eternal life through Jesus Christ. 
You see, they were so spiritually blind that they were only looking at the here and the now. We want this problem. We want our circumstances fixed now. But Jesus was coming to fix things for all eternity. Amen. But they were so spiritually blind. The Bible tells us in this passage that as Jesus weeps, he speaks of the fact that, that they have, he says, if you only would have known why am I I'm here. We won't turn there, but in the Gospel of John, when Pilate is interrogating and speaking to Jesus, what does Jesus clearly say? He says, my kingdom is not of this world. I'm no threat to you, in essence. This, my kingdom is not of this world. My, my kingdom is, is of the Father. It's a different kingdom. It's a spiritual kingdom. It's an eternal kingdom. And he makes that very clear. So much so that Pilate goes out and he washes his hands. And he says, I have found no wrong in this man. I have found no wrong in him. And he even gives him an opportunity. He says, who do you want? Do you want this criminal Barabbas? Do you want this, this criminal, this one who is uh, guilty of insurrection and most probable murder? Do you want him or, or, or who do you want? And they said, crucify Jesus. Give us Barabbas. Set Barabbas free. They were so spiritually blind. And as Jesus looks out over the city, he weeps. He's heartbroken for them because they were so spiritually blind. Look at this passage in Mark 8, 36 and 37. The Bible says this, What good is it for someone to gain the whole world, yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? What profit, what does it profit me if he gains the whole world and he loses his own soul? You see, what Jesus, in essence, was doing as he wept over the city is he's saying, you want a temporary fix. You want me to fix this temporary problem. In essence, what, what, what profit is there in that? To fix for you a temporary problem that you have, but not to take care of the eternal problem. And that is the eternal problem of sin. And sin that separates us from God. And sin that separates us from eternal life with God. But literally sends us to eternal damnation in hell. What does it profit a man if you gain the whole world and lose his own soul? And how sad it is. But can I say this today? That there are many churches where people are coming in to the church and they're still spiritually blind. They're coming in for this one reason, for God to fix their problems here and now. And they're being told that God is here to be your little genie in a, in a little lamp. Are you with me? You can have your best life now. If you say yes to Jesus, all your problems are going to go away. And life is going to be great and wonderful. But can I tell you something? We can have the abundant life, amen? We can. But can I tell you something? That's not what Jesus promised. I don't know about you when Jesus says, take up your cross and follow me. That's pretty serious stuff. Like, wow. There are a lot of churches filled with people. And you're saying, which church? I'm I'm just saying there's a lot of churches filled with people. 
who may end up losing their own soul because they're only showing up because I want my best life now. You see, Jesus made it very clear. What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? Do you know what Jesus said in another passage? In other gospels, also in Mark, he said this. If your eye offends you, do what? Pluck it out. He says, if your hand offends you, cut it off. I mean, this is graphic. Jesus says, what he says is it would be far better to enter into eternal life, to enter into eternal life maimed, than to enter hell whole. Pastor Joe, you're... These are strong words. I'm just giving you the words of Jesus. They are strong words. I'm just repeating the Lord Jesus Christ. You know what he says? He's saying this, that whatever is hindering you from following Jesus Christ, if it's your eye, if it's, if it's, if it's the lust of the eyes, and it's, you know, or if your foot or your hand, whatever it is that's keeping you from entering into the kingdom, cut it off. Because it would be far better to go into eternal life, main, than to go to hell whole. And so Jesus is brokenhearted. And he gives a prophecy and he says that there is a curse that is coming to the city. And he wept over them because he said there was not going to be one turn left unstuck. One stone left unturned. And he makes a prophetic statement. And by the way, 40 years after that prophetic statement, General Titus came to the city of Jerusalem because there was the Judean-Roman war. And there was an uprising, and they said, we're going to be set free from, from the power of Rome. And there was an uprising. And it's interesting But for five months, they besieged General Titus, later becomes the emperor. The son of Vespasian comes, besieges the city, surrounds the city, and for five months, they wage war on the city of Jerusalem. Why did Jesus weep? Because out of their own selfishness and out of their own blindness, they were massacred. Josephus says that 1.1 million civilians, women and children, remember Jesus wept for the children? 1.1 million civilians died in those five months. Famine, they were starved out, killed. And finally, the Roman army was able to break through the walls. As they break through the walls, 1.1 million killed. Josephus gives very graphic detail that literally a river of blood flowed down the, the, the steps of the city. That the bodies piled upon one another and they were literally, they would... They were sliding down the steps and piling heaped upon heaps, he says. City eventually caught fire and was burned. They turned to stones in order to get the gold that was melted from Herod's temple in Jerusalem. Josephus says that 97,000 were taken into captivity. All those 17 years and under were 
put into servitude. They were slaves. And of the 97,000, tens of thousands of them were put into the arenas and they were slaughtered. Jesus wept. Jesus wept because he realized the result of their spiritual blindness. The other thing Jesus does, because we're running out of time, but they're, I mean, think about this, guys. You know, I just want us to get this. They're throwing a party, you know, like, whoa, yay. And they're having this party, and Jesus is crying. And they're probably going, what's up with this guy? But the next thing Jesus does, notice this, is he immediately, where does he go? He goes to the temple, and he cleanses the temple. He goes to the temple. You know, like, like this is supposed to be like, Hey, Jesus, you're king. Jesus goes straight to the temple. This is the second time he does this. The first time is at the very, John chapter 2, the very beginning of his ministry. Jesus goes to the temple, remember? And he cleans house and he rebukes them. The very, one of the last acts, one of the last things that Jesus does when he comes into the city of Jerusalem, what does he do? He rides in on that colt. As he's riding in, he cries and he weeps. And then he immediately goes to the temple. And the Bible says that he overturns the tables. Look with us in Matthew uh, chapter 21, verses 12 through 15. Just another, Matthew gives us a little bit different reading. He says, Jesus entered the temple courts. This is right after he comes in on that colt. And it says he drove all out who were buying and selling there. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. The blind and lame came to him at the temple and he healed them. So he still performs more miracles. But when the chief priests and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things he did and the children shouting in the temple courts, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. They were in opposition to what Jesus did. But what does Jesus do? He goes into the temple this second time and he flips over the tables and he runs them out. And he said, you have made my house, the house of God, a den of robbers or a den of thieves. What does Jesus mean by this? Obviously, we know that, yes, they were greedy and they were selfish and they were taking advantage of people and it was the Passover and they were charging exuberant rates. Many people believe, some theologians say, and I think this to be true, that what they were also doing is they were selling the same sacrifices over and over and over. People were traveling from great distances for the time of the Passover, needed a sacrifice because they would be hurt and maimed and sick and dirty in the trip. So they were desperate, so they would charge exuberant fees and as they were there. But also many times they would bring out and say, well, this will be your sacrifice and we'll make this sacrifice for you. And then they would just keep charging for the same one over and over again. Regardless of that, the thing is, is they were exploiting and taking advantage of the house of God for their own personal gain. But may I propose to you that I believe that Jesus was making a much deeper statement, and that is this. is when he says, you have made my house a den of thieves. I believe the deeper meaning is this, is he was saying this, you have used the house of God, you have used religion to steal men's souls. 
Did you hear what I said this morning? To steal men's souls. Look what Matthew 23 says. Matthew 23, verse 13 through 15. Listen to the words of Jesus Christ. He says, but woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. What do they do? You shut up the kingdom of heaven against men. For ye neither go into it yourselves. He says, you're not going to heaven. Wow. That's a strong statement. Neither suffer ye them that are entering to go in. You keep other people from going to heaven. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you devour widows' houses for a pretense and make long prayer, therefore ye shall receive the greater damnation. He says, you are going to receive the greater damnation. Woe unto you. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you, you, you compass the sea and land to make one proselyte. And when he is made, you make him, listen to these words, you make him twofold more a child of hell than yourselves. Wow. Strong words. Jesus says to these religious leaders, you are not going to heaven. But beyond that, he says, you have the greater or greatest damnation. Why? Because you are taking others who have a desire to enter the kingdom, but you're stealing their souls. Can I tell you something? You say, what is the greatest thing that steals men's souls, that keeps people out of heaven? You ready for it? Religion. Religion. Well, I go to church. Or I do this, or I do that. I'm a part of this, or I'm a part of that. And... The number one enemy of a true relationship with Jesus Christ is religion. And Jesus says that these spiritual leaders, he called them blind guides. He says, you are blind guides. He says, and you are not leading anyone into heaven. In fact, you're shutting the door of heaven. And you're keeping those who even desire to go into heaven out And he says, you are blind guides. And he says, neither will you enter in. Christ breaks into the temple and he cleans house. And he says, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it to a den of thieves. So what do we learn from Palm Sunday? What is it that we learned from this first Palm Sunday? Well, first of all, while everyone else was throwing a party and celebrating, Jesus was broken hearted. And I wonder what the disciples thought at first as they silently just observed Jesus weeping and they at least hear the things that he say because they record for us the things that Jesus said. When he walks into that temple... We see that Jesus responded completely different. You know what else I learned from this? And that is something that we all need to ask ourselves. And that is, how do we respond when Jesus or when the Lord or when God doesn't do what we want him to do? You see, that day they were crying out. We could call it prayer, call it what you want. But they were crying out and saying, Lord, deliver us. Deliver us, deliver us. And when Jesus didn't do 
what they wanted him to do, they turned on him pretty quickly. Are you with me? And so how do, how do we apply this to us? Well, how do we react when God doesn't do what we expect him to do? May I remind you of something? God's ways are much higher than our ways. And his thoughts are much higher than our thoughts, says the Lord. And so they quickly turned on him. And so on the first Palm Sunday, everyone's throwing a party. Jesus is weeping. And Jesus goes in and starts overturning tables and throwing stuff everywhere. And he cleanses the house of God. I think what it does, I think if anything, it should allow us to realize what Jesus' priorities were. His priorities were, were the condition of men's souls. Amen? That Jesus Christ, I think it, it screams that Jesus Christ is saying, I am not here for religion. I'm here to develop a relationship with mankind. Amen? And it's not about religion. And so what happens on this day is because of what Jesus did, because of what Jesus did on this day and the next couple days, the crowd turns on him. And they cry out, crucify him. Crucify him. Crucify him. You see, next Sunday we're going to celebrate the resurrection. Amen? And it's going to be awesome. But can I just, as we close and we get ready to close, can I just remind you of something that oftentimes this is, and this is where I think a lot of times the Christian life, we, we see it like this. We only think about the cool stuff. Palm Sunday, yay! We all go home. Come back, Easter Sunday, yay! He's risen, But can I remind us all of something? What Jesus did between Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday, it all started with what Jesus did that day when he goes into the temple and he cleanses the temple and he says, this is wrong. It's coming to an end. They crucify him. And Jesus goes through what we call the passion. Jesus goes through... And he is denied and betrayed, spit upon and beaten, and he dies a very cruel death. And he goes to the cross. And so I just want to remind us, followers of Jesus Christ, that yes, we celebrate Palm Sunday, yes, we celebrate the resurrection, but there is, listen to me, there is no celebration of the resurrection if Jesus Christ does not die on the cross and go through all that he went through. He became the ultimate sacrifice for us. And so can I remind us, church, can I remind us this week, remember and reflect and think about what Christ went through. And may I just encourage you today and the days to come to be reminded that it wasn't just the cool stuff, but Jesus Christ was willing to go to the cross for us. Amen? You see, there is no resurrection without the cross. There is no coming back to life without death. And so Jesus, he did that for us. Jesus was concerned 
about the spiritual blindness of those in his day. Can I tell you something? I would say that Jesus right now is concerned that there are many and many people who are still spiritually blind. May our, may our eyes be opened. Amen. May we pray. Church, as we close with a word of prayer, I want you to stay seated because the worship team's going to come. We're going to have one last song. But can I just say this? As we pray, can we as a church maybe see through the eyes of Christ and be broken? Can we not see through the eyes of Christ and realize that we live, especially in the air that we live, in an area that is so spiritually blinded? We have so much religion, but very few, honestly, very few truly have a relationship with Jesus Christ. We need to pray. Pray that God would open the eyes of our neighbors and of our community. Would you pray that with me this morning? Would you pray? Lord, I pray you bless your word.